You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. My name is Stephen Heiner, and welcome to Islam, the Truth About the Religion of Peace. This is a new series on the Fleming Foundation, and my guest for this series will be Dr. Sergej Trifkovich. Dr. Trifkovich, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Today we're going to be doing episode zero, a zero series. The zero episode in all of our series is always the origin. Why are we doing this podcast, and what's the intellectual background behind our subject? So, Dr. Fitch, why did you write this book, The Sword of the Prophet? In the immediate aftermath of uh, uh, 9-11, uh, we had a whole series of commentators claiming that uh, this was an act by aberrant Muslims who do not reflect the true teaching of their faith. In fact, President George W. Bush, in the first week after the attacks, went to Washington, D.C. area mosque uh, to state more or less the same thing. Islam is a religion of peace, and uh, uh, it has nothing to do with the attacks. Uh, even though I am not an Islamologist, by training I had taken a great deal of interest in the problem of Islam's interaction with uh, the surrounding non-Islamic communities uh, in history, especially since I come from the Balkans, part of the world where this interaction had left a very traumatic mark on uh, the Christian communities. And uh, I also published a series of articles in Chronicles on this subject uh, even before 9-11. So I felt prompted to uh, look for a book that would provide a frank and uh, not necessarily politically correct, but comprehensive and objective summary of the problem of relations uh, between Islam and non-Islam. And I realized that in fact, no such book existed in the English language uh, that would be written popularly and at the same time uh, accompanied by uh, the usual uh, sources and footnotes that uh, would pass the demands of academic and scientific rigor. And uh, at that time there was a small publishing house in Boston, Regina Orthodox Press, and uh, uh, its president, Frank Schaefer, contacted me, uh, having seen some of my writings in Chronicles, and asked if I would be interested in uh, doing a popular guide to Islam for a generalist, an educated generalist. And uh, this fitted in with what I had started thinking about already. So already by, uh, say, November of 2011, I started preparing uh, to write this book, and it was ready 10 months later. Uh, my stated intent uh, was to provide uh, a summary of the teaching, uh, the biography of 
Muhammad, his remarkable career and works, uh, the subsequent 13 and a half centuries of Islamic practice and Islamic politics and law, and uh, the relevance of it all for us today, and uh, in particular, the extent to which interaction between Islam and non-Islam is characterized or not characterized by its allegedly peaceful and tolerant character. The response was, I must say, quite remarkable and unexpected. Uh, tens of thousands of copies of the book were sold in the first year, even though uh, its launch was completely ignored by the mainstream media, and even though uh, the publishers did not invest heavily in advertising. Nevertheless, already by that time, uh, the Internet was important enough a uh, way to communicate between people, particularly like-minded people interested in similar topics. So uh, the orders uh, kept pouring in, and uh, I had dozens of invitations from all over the United States to come and speak to different groups, Rotary clubs, Catholic groups, and uh, uh, even though there were some negative commentaries, uh, online primarily. Uh, it was not reviewed in any of the mainstream organs. I think it was because the guardians of political correctitude thought that it would be better to ignore it than to give negative reviews because, after all, as we know, there is no negative publicity. Well, you, you gave them the clue, Dr. Trifkovich, because your subtitle is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam. Right? Well, that's subtitle wasn't mine, I must say, and uh, I would have preferred it not to be uh, included, especially not to be put on the front cover. On the other hand, in their wisdom, publishers thought that it would be good for marketing purposes, because uh, really it somewhat uh, lowers the tone. I uh, believe that my account, even though it is de facto politically incorrect, uh, was not uh, written with the intention of uh, poking uh, the eye of the politically correct crowd. I wanted it to be a balanced, even-handed, and uh, on the whole comprehensive, but uh, historically sound and well-sourced uh, summary of the problem. So, can, can I stay on this theme, Dr. Zufkic? Why was it important for President Bush to go give that speech? Why was it important to have a narrative that these were aberrant Muslims? That narrative had been established well before the attacks, and I believe that uh, he was simply following the group think that, uh, for instance, Bill Clinton uh, outlined in a speech to the United Nations in 1996 where the theme of genuine Islam, which is peaceful and tolerant and aberrant forms of behavior such as terrorist attacks was firmly established. In other words, I think that already during the 90s, uh, when we had uh, the first planned attack against the World Trade Center in, uh, in New York and a whole series of other attacks uh, elsewhere 
even though none of them were as spectacular as those of 9-11, this theme was prevalent on both sides of the Atlantic. So uh, I think that the attempt to develop uh, a relationship with some form of user-friendly Islam uh, was already visible in uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's attempt to use jihadists in Afghanistan as a tool against the Soviets. And even uh, 18 years after uh, this uh, relationship developed in 1980, in the closing months of the Carter administration, in his now famous interview for Le Nouvel Observateur, uh, the leading French news weekly, Brzezinski said that it was an excellent idea and uh, that it forced the Soviets into a losing conflict in Afghanistan, which contributed to the collapse of the Soviet empire. Asked by uh, the French journalist if he has some regrets about uh, helping make Islam a global phenomenon, or rather Islamic terrorism a global phenomenon, uh, Brzezinski swiftly responded, no, what regrets, what is more important uh, the, the liberation of Eastern Europe or a bunch of uh, heated up Muslims. And uh, this approach, uh, as late as 1998, after we've seen the extent to which the genie was let out of the bottle, uh, reflected a dogmatic approach in Washington, D.C., which had bipartisan character and which in Europe, already by that time, was accompanied by uh, the elite position that Islam belonged to Europe, that Islam was an integral part of European history and European civilization, and it was also a period when uh, uh, there was accelerated immigration from North Africa in particular into France, from the Indian subcontinent into Great Britain, and from Turkey into Germany, and from all over the place into Benelux and Scandinavia. So the elite position was already pretty much uh, solid on both sides uh, of the pond, and I think that George Bush simply went along with what must have been a consensus within his cabinet and his national security apparatus. So tell us a bit about the process. You said that you're you're not an, an Islamic scholar by trade. What did you have to do in order to to get the resources to write this book? Well, I had first of all to read some of the classics of of Islamic studies, uh, like Muir. I also read the Quran uh, in different translations, and uh, I also read some of uh, the classics of Arab history in particular, like Albert Hurani or Albert Hurani. And uh, I also devoted uh, a lot of time to following uh, media reports and commentary and then juxtaposing it against uh, uh, the sources that uh, are treated as classics in the field, but also being interested all my life in geopolitics and uh, 
in history. I, uh, in particular, devoted some attention to uh, the record of Islam's interaction with the surrounding societies and the way in which what is euphemistically called the spread of Islam in politically correct circles was in fact the conquest and uh, the way in which it was scripturally ordained and uh, uh, justified by the Hadith, uh, the traditions of the Prophet as recorded or allegedly recorded by his contemporaries. And the most important conclusion uh, was that uh, the problem of Islamic violence and Islamic aggression against non-Islamic communities uh, was in the source texts and in uh, uh, the person of the founder of the religion, the prophet of Islam, who emerges from uh, Islam's very own orthodox, impeccable sources as truly the prophets of violence and uh, of intolerance. That already in the early decades uh, after Muhammad's uh, so-called four uh, soundly guided caliphs, Abu Bakr, Omar, Osman and Ali, we had the body of thought and practice and legal and uh, political codification in place, which has provided uh, the basis for uh, Islamic societies ever since, and which to this very day is the model for the revivalists who want to uh, fall back on what they regard as a sound practice of the Prophet and his early successors in opposition to modernity and in opposition to any attempt to reform the faith on the basis of critical judgment and universal morality. Why do you think there wasn't a book like yours on the landscape in English? Well, it's hard to say. First of all, I think that it uh, would have been normal and one would have expected such a book to appear uh, before for the simple reason that the problem of Islam's interaction with uh, what they would call infidel society or this constant tension between the world of faith and the world of war as, as Islam divides the world, uh, Dar al-Harb and Dar al-Islam, uh, would be something both interesting and uh, politically and uh, geopolitically relevant well before uh, the Twin Towers fell down. Now, subsequent to my book, we had a whole series of others uh, similarly intoned and uh, uh, also falling under the politically incorrect label. Uh, I'm glad that I was a pioneer in the field, even though it didn't exactly make me rich. But on the other hand, uh, the resistance of the establishment uh, to uh, such critical approach and uh, the way in which both in the United States and in Europe uh, such attempts were deemed illegitimate and beyond the pale of civilized discourse, uh, I must say, surprised me because it reflected a certain collective civilizational weakness that uh, a phenomenon which is obviously 
a threat to uh, the legacy of uh, Judeo-Christian and, and European and in particular Christian legacy, the threat which manifested itself as early as the 8th century in the Iberian Peninsula and which was only checked in the early 9th century by Charles Martel and which then renewed itself in the 14th century when the Turks crossed the Dardanelles into Europe, that this threat was now treated as uh, non-existent or uh, at least as the result of aberrant behavior of a small and unrepresentative minority. Uh, this really prompted in my mind questions about the ability of a civilization in such deep state of moral and, and intellectual de decrepitude to defend itself which resulted in my second book on the subject, Defeating Jihad, uh, which appeared in uh, 2007. You said that there was an immediate reaction, unexpected on your part, and, and that there was a spawning of, uh, as you say, politically incorrect literature. I take your, your point that it, it isn't the, the, uh, the original goal of your book. What what have you noticed over the years? So it's been it's been almost fifteen years since this book has come out. What um, what has been sort of a legacy for you in terms of dealing with these issues? And did you ever get the the angry uh, voicemail from um, an uh, an aberrant Muslim warning you uh, not to talk about these things? Uh, not directly. There have been. Uh, such comments on uh, various jihadist websites, including a call from, for, from Bangladesh for uh, my physical elimination. But on the other hand, I uh, didn't allow this sort of thing to impact my daily life because, uh, after all, if we allow this to disrupt our daily routine and uh, to... Uh, loom darkly on, on our conscience, then in a way we are on the way to submission. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this really contributed to uh, my exclusion from the pool of acceptable candidates for various posts, in, particularly in academia. Uh, a specific example is that I was teaching uh, Western civilization courses at a community college in, in a Chicago northern suburb uh, five, six and seven years ago. And uh, uh, it was when one of the students, as I understand it, warned the powers that be that I am the author of this scandalous book that uh, my temporary contract uh, was not renewed. This didn't particularly impact <laughs> my uh, career because I was really doing it as a form of uh, mental gymnastics to keep a foothold in academia but uh, at the same time it was an indicator of uh, the way in which any subsequent attempt to uh, relaunch my uh, academic career in the United States was more or less impossible in a mainstream institution. And uh, now I teach international relations at the University of Banja Luka in uh, uh, the Serb Republic in Bosnia-Herzegovina. But uh, mercifully, 
the same spirit of velvet-gloved totalitarianism does not prevail there. Well, it might be because they have a better sense of history than Americans do, Dr. Trifkovich. Indeed, and uh, I think that uh, uh, it's not only in uh, the field of historical amnesia, but also in increasingly zany social and uh, cultural uh, revisionism and uh, uh, one might almost say psychopathology that uh, uh, the U.S. academia is in the forefront of cultural Marxist revolution, which only a decade ago would have been hardly imaginable. If this book was important in 2002, when you first published it, why is it as important, or would you say more important today? Uh, because everything that has come to pass confirms my fundamental thesis, which is that uh, uh, Orthodox Islam is uh, inherently a threat not only to the West, but to every non-Islamic polity and civilization. And after all, if you look at the conflicts in today's world, and this is a very important point, uh, looking at the extreme southeastern point of contact between Islam and non-Islam, we have an insurgency in the Philippines, uh, we have uh, a constant uh, jihadist low-level insurgency in southern Thailand, we have uh, perennial problems in the Indian subcontinent, uh, the issue of Kashmir, which remains unresolved. Uh, seven years ago, we had attacks in Bombay, which were uh, jihadist attacks inspired by the Pakistani military intelligence service. And then, of course, we have the crescent of instability from Afghanistan and uh, uh, the greater Middle East to the Caucasus and the Balkans. Uh, in each and every case, uh, the interface between Islam and non-Islam creates tensions and conflicts in Cyprus, in Kosovo, in Bosnia, Herzegovina, in, uh, in the Caucasus, uh, between Christians and uh, Yazdis and Alawites, and on one hand, and Sunnis on the other in Syria, uh, between Sunnis and Shiites in the Gulf, and, uh, and in Iraq. And uh, of course, the Lebanon is uh, uh, a true leopard skin country, which, where you have all of these communities presented in one form or, or another. And uh, last but not least, uh, the uh, impossibility of acceptance of Israel's legitimacy by uh, Orthodox Islam is at the root of uh, the Palestinian problem uh, and uh, the intransigence of the Likud government is uh, perhaps a consequence rather than a cause of the impossibility of applying the two-state solution, which would be in the long term the rational one for both communities. But uh, what has also happened uh, since the publication of the book is that the Islamic diaspora in Western Europe has grown uh, exponentially and uh, it has shown itself unamenable to uh, not only 
assimilation that I think uh, had been impossible from the outset, but also meaningful integration, that increasingly we have ghettoized communities which function by their own rules. Uh, we have what the French euphemistically call zones of special sensitivity, which are de facto no-go areas in the banlieues, and a similar phenomena we have in Scandinavia, in Benelux, in uh, some of the German cities, particularly in Berlin, and also in the old Victorian industrial cities in Yorkshire and, uh, and the West Midlands. And this, uh, paradoxically, but I already hinted at this possibility in, my, in, in, in the Sword of the Prophet, this is accompanied by increasingly shrill insistence of uh, the political media and uh, intellectual elites in Western Europe that uh, uh, Islam is a part of the solution, not part of the problem, and that uh, the causes of terrorism should be analyzed independently of Islam itself, including introspection and uh, improving uh, job opportunities, ending poverty, fighting Islamophobia and discrimination, and so on. Uh, so we have uh, what I would call an even graver situation than when I wrote the book, because uh, the extent to which the European elite class seems completely separated from any sense of civilizational responsibility to their own nation and to their own ancestors is reflected in the fact that a nominal Christian Democrat like the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, uh, opened the floodgates in 2015 to over a million unvetted newcomers who, as we know, have caused uh, exponential rise in uh, 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 the security threat to Germany. Some of them have carried out uh, attacks already, and uh, yet she remains adamant that she will not uh, put even a nominal cap on the numbers, even though those numbers may start flooding Europe again at any moment uh, if Turkey's unstable president Recep Tayyip Erdogan presses the button. And at the same time, Merkel uh, insisted uh, with the support of the unelected uh, Brussels bureaucrats, such as the foreign commissioner Federica Mogherini or Jean-Claude Juncker, that uh, all of the 28 members, or 27 soon uh, with Britain's departure, should accept mandatory quotas from this uh, pool of migrants uh, and, uh, uh, to their credit, former Soviet bloc countries in Central Europe, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary have resisted such demands and uh, uh, maybe this proves that in terms of preserving national identity and uh, civilizational awareness of one's roots and the capacity to defend one's country, uh, communism was less corrosive, less morally and spiritually destructive than hedonistic individualistic liberalism. Well, also, again, Dr. Fkovich, those countries all know what it is to be invaded and occupied 
by Muslims, all those countries that you, you mentioned. Perhaps the, the irony is that the Western European countries which were protected from the scourge of Islam because of the bravery of people like Jan Sobieski, etc., they don't really see Islam as a threat uh, because they've never had to deal with the way these other countries have. Um, and, I, and I see your book today more, as, more than ever as a necessary correction to the new normal uh, that is now in Europe. I, I had a conversation the other day just in passing about the, there was an attack here at the Louvre um, uh, just last week. And my friend in America had mentioned it didn't even make the news because this is a new normal. I mean, someone uh, getting uh, knifed or, or shot here in Paris, uh, that's, you know, that's just a Wednesday uh, here in France. And uh, more than ever, we need books like yours to inform people about the real story. Well, first of all, I'm not sure that direct historical experience is uh, necessary to have a sober and, uh, and rational assessment of the threats. Uh, in particular, I would uh, mention the example of Spain. After all, Spain, or uh, it didn't exist under that name at that time, uh, was the Iberian Peninsula, was the first... Uh, target of a sustained and uh, long-lasting uh, Islamic invasion, which started as early as 712 AD and uh, reached the Pyrenees uh, within only two decades. And uh, because after Franco's death in uh, uh, 1975, uh, the the Spanish society has been very quickly normalized uh, in terms of uh, increasingly uh, historically uh, am amnesiac liberalism of the rest of Western Europe. In Spain, you don't actually see the same sober assessment of the threats that you find in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And... Uh, Nationwide today, there are some two million Muslim immigrants, primarily from Morocco, and they account maybe for 4% of her 46 million people. Uh, but as is the case in all other European countries with a large Islamic diaspora, its leaders are also making ever-escalating and sometimes outrageous demands. You see, I'm particularly well acquainted with this example because uh, for the past four years I have been spending a lot of time in Gran, Gran Canaria, which is uh, uh, one of the Canary Islands off the coast of Morocco and southernmost province of Spain. Now, uh, Muslim leaders in Spain are even demanding the termination of the traditional celebrations of uh, fiestas de moros y cristianos, which is really a celebration of Reconquista, and uh, because it is uh, insulting to them as they see it. And uh, at the same time, politicians in Madrid are following in the footsteps of those in Paris and, and, and Berlin and Brussels. For instance, in December in, uh, of 2011, uh, Madrid inaugurated a major exhibition between the two worlds to commemorate what they call the 13th anniversary of Spain's social 
and cultural transformation, which was euphemism for the Muslim invasion. And then president of the community of Madrid, Esperanza Aguirre, even called it, and I quote, one of the most thrilling moments in the history of Spain. Now, uh, it means that, uh, as I said earlier, uh, the imposition of the ideology of uh, postmodernia, which includes uh, political correctitude and self-denial, is in fact more corrosive to the capacity of a country for sustained defense than even direct historical experience. Indeed. Well, Dr. Trifkovich, I'm looking forward to this series with you. Thanks for taking the time to give us a bit of the origin story and uh, why, why you wrote this book and, and why you think it's important. And we'll be getting into this. Uh, obviously, your book's available on, on Amazon or, or uh, other places. So uh, On Amazon primarily. I don't think it is available in, uh, in the bookstores any longer because it's been out of print since... Uh, the publishing house went out of business some ah. six years ago. Alas. All right. Well, if you want to follow along with what we'll be doing in this series, uh, I would you would do well to get a copy of the book. I'll provide a, a link to it in the show notes for today. And Dr. Rivkic and I will be working through the book with obviously some, some commentary. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Rivkic. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.